Chapter Nine of the Planet of the Damned by Harry Harrison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine. The guard inside the front entrance of the foundation building jumped at the thunderous noise and reached for his gun. He dropped his hand sheepishly when he realized it was only a sneeze, though a gargantuan one. Brian came up, sniffling, huddling down into his coat. "'I'm going out before I catch pneumonia,' he said. The guard saluted dumbly, and after checking his proximity detector screens, he slipped out and the heavy portal thudded shut behind him. The street was still warm from the heat of the day, and he sighed happily and opened his coat. This was partly a reconnaissance trip, and partly a way of getting warmed up. There was little else he could do in the building. The staff had long since retired. He had slept for a half an hour and had waked refreshed and ready to work. All the reports he could understand had been read and re-read until they were memorized. He could use the time now, while the rest of them were asleep, to get better acquainted with the main city of Dis. As he walked the dark streets, he realized how alien the Disson way of life was to everything he knew. This city, Hovestad, literally meant main place in the native language. And that's all it was. It was only the presence of the off-worlders that made it into a city. Building after building, standing deserted, bore the names of mining companies, traders, space transporters. None of them was occupied now. Some still had lights burning, switched on by automatic apparatus. Others were as dark as the Disson structures. There weren't many of these native constructions, and they seemed out of place among the rammed earth and prefab off-world buildings. Brian examined one that was dimly illuminated by the light on the corner of Vagan Smelters Limited. It consisted of a single large room resting right on the ground. There were no windows, and the whole thing appeared to have been constructed of some sort of woven material plastered with stone-hard mud. Nothing was blocking the door, and he was thinking seriously of going in when he became aware that he was being followed. It was only a slight noise, almost lost in the night. Normally it would never have been noticed, but tonight Brian was listening with his entire body. Someone was behind him, swallowed up in the pools of darkness. Brian shrank back against the wall. There was very little chance that this could be anyone but a Disson. He had a sudden memory of Merv's severed head as it had been discovered outside the door. Igel had helped him train his empathetic sense, and he reached out with it. It was difficult working in the dark. He could be sure of nothing. Was he getting a reaction or just wishing for one? Why did it have a ring of familiarity to it? A sudden idea struck him. Ulv, he said very softly, this is Brian. He crouched, ready for an attack. I know, a voice said softly in the night. Do not talk. Walk in the direction you were going before. Asking questions now would accomplish nothing. 
Brian turned instantly and did as he was bidden. The buildings grew further apart until he realized from the sand underfoot that he was back in the planet-wide desert. It could be a trap. He hadn't recognized the voice behind the whisper, yet he had to take this chance. A darker shape appeared in the dark night near him, and a burning hot hand touched his arm lightly. I will walk ahead. Follow close behind me. The words were louder, and this time Brian recognized the voice. Without waiting for an answer, Ulv turned, and his dimly seen shape vanished into the darkness. Brian moved swiftly after him until they walked side by side over the rolling hills of sand. The sand merged into hard-baked ground, became cracked and scarred with rock-filled gullies. They followed a deepening gully that grew into a good-sized ravine. When they turned an angle of the ravine, Brian saw a weak yellow light coming from an opening in the hard dirt wall. Ulv dropped on all fours and vanished through the shoulder-wide hole. Brian followed him, trying to ignore the growing tension and unease he felt. Crawling like this, head down, he was terribly vulnerable. He tried to shrug off the feeling, mentally blaming it on tense nerves. The tunnel was short and opened into a larger chamber. A sudden scuffle of feet sounded at the same instant that a wave of empathetic hatred struck him. It took vital seconds to fight his way out of the trapped tunnel, to roll clear and bring his gun up. During those seconds, he should have died. The disson poised above him had the short-handled stone hammer raised to strike a skull-crushing blow. Ulv was clutching the man's wrist, fighting silently to keep the hammer from falling. Neither combatant said a word, the rasp of their calloused feet on the sand the only sound. Brian backed away from the struggling men, his gun centered on the stranger. The disson followed him with burning eyes and dropped the hammer as soon as it was obvious the attack had failed. "'Why did you bring him here?' he growled at Ulv. "'Why didn't you kill him?' "'He is here so we can listen to what he says, Gebk. "'He is the one I told you of that I found in the desert. "'We listen to what he says and then we kill him,' Gebk said with a mirthless grin. The remark wasn't meant to be humorous, but was made in all seriousness. Brian recognized this and knew that there was no danger for the present moment. He slid the gun away and, for the first time, looked around the chamber. It was domed in shape and was still hot from the heat of the day. Ulv took off the length of cloth he had wrapped around his body against the chill and refolded it as a kilt strapping it on under his belt artifacts. He grunted something unintelligible, and when a muttered answer came, Brian for the first time became aware of the woman and the child. The two sat against the far wall, squatting on either side of a heap of fibrous plants. Both were nude, clothed only in the matted hair that fell below their shoulders. The belt of strange tools could not be classified as clothing. 
Even the child wore a tiny replica of his mother's. Putting down a length of plant she had been chewing, the woman shuffled over to the tiny fire that illuminated the room. A clay pot stood over it, and from this she ladled three bowls of food for the men. It smelled atrocious, and Brian tried not to taste or smell the sickening mixture while he ate it. He used his fingers, as did the other men, and did not talk while he ate. There was no way to tell if the silence was ritual or habit. It gave him a chance for a closer look at the Disson way of living. The cave was obviously man-made. Tool marks could be clearly seen in the hard clay of the walls, except in the portion opposite the entrance. That was covered with a network of roots rising out of the floor and vanishing into the roof of earth above. Perhaps this was the reason for the cave's existence. The thin roots had been carefully twisted and plaited together until they formed a single swollen root in the center, as thick as a man's arm. From this hung four of the Vedas. Ulv had placed his there before he sat down. The teeth must have instantly sunk in, for it hung unsupported, another link in the distant life cycle. This appeared to be the source of the Vedas' water that nourished the people. Brian was aware of eyes upon him and turned and smiled at the little girl. She couldn't have been over six years old, but she was already a Disson in every way. She neither returned his smile nor changed her expression, unchildlike in its stolidity. Her hands and jaw never stopped as she worked on the lengths of fibrous plant her mother had placed before her. The child split them with a small tool and removed a pod of some kind. This was peeled, partially by scraping with a different tool and partially by working between her teeth. It took long minutes to remove the tough rind. The results seemed hardly worth it. A tiny, wriggling object was finally disclosed, which the girl instantly swallowed. She then began working on the next pod. Ulf put down his clay bowl and belched. "'I brought you to the city as I told you I would,' he said. "'Have you done as you said you would?' "'What did he promise?' Gebk asked. "'That he would stop the war. Have you stopped it?' "'I am trying to stop it,' Brian said, "'but it is not that easy. I'll need some help. It is your life that needs saving, yours and your family's.' If you would help me— What is the truth? What is the truth? Ulv broke in savagely. All I hear is difference, and there is no longer any way to tell truth. For as long as always we have done as the Magter said. We bring them food, and they give us the metal and sometimes water when we need it. As long as we do as they ask, they do not kill us. They live the wrong way— but I have had bronze from them for my tools. They have told us that they are getting a world for us from the Sky People, and that is good. It has always been known that the Sky People are evil in every way, and only good can come from killing them, Gebk said. Brian stared back at the two Dissons and their obvious hatred. Then why didn't you kill me, Ulv? he asked, 
that first time in the desert or tonight when you stopped grebk i could have but there was something more important what is the truth can we believe as we have always done or should we listen to this he threw a small sheet of plastic to brian no bigger than the palm of his hand a metal button was fastened to one corner of the wafer and a simple drawing was embedded in the wafer brian held it to the light and saw the picture of a man's hand squeezing the button between thumb and forefinger it was a sub-miniaturized playback mechanical pressure on the case provided enough current to play the recorded message the plastic sheet vibrated acting as a loudspeaker though the voice was thin and scratchy the words were clearly audible it was an appeal for the dissent people not to listen to the magter it explained that the magter had started a war that could have only one ending the destruction of dis only if the magter were thrown down and their weapons discovered could there be any hope are these words true ulv asked yes brian said they are perhaps true gebk said but there is nothing that we can do i was with my brother when these word things fell out of the sky and he listened to one and took it to the magter to ask them they killed him as he should have known they would do the magter kill us if they know we listen to the words and the words tell us we will die if we listen to the magter ulv shouted his voice cracking not with fear but with frustration at the attempt to reconcile two opposite points of view up until this time his world had consisted of black and white values with very few shadings of difference in between there are things you can do that will stop the war without hurting yourselves or the magter brian said searching for a way to enlist their aid tell us ulv grunted there would be no war if the magter could be contacted made to listen to reason they are killing you all you could tell me how to talk to the magter how i could understand them no one can talk to the magter the woman broke in if you say something different they will kill you as they killed greb's brother so they are easy to understand that is the way they are they do not change she put the length of plant she had been softening for the child back into her mouth her lips were deeply grooved and scarred from a lifetime of this work her teeth at the sides worn almost to the bone mar is right ulv said you do not talk to magter what else is there to do brian looked at the two men before he spoke and shifted his weight the motion brought his fingertips just a few inches from his gun the magter have bombs that will destroy nijord this is the next planet a star in your sky if i can find where the bombs are i will have them taken away and there will be no war you want us to aid the devils in the sky against our own people grebk shouted half rising ulv pulled him back to the ground but there was no more warmth in his voice as he spoke you are asking too much you will leave now 
Will you help me, though? Will you help stop the war? Brian asked, aware he had gone too far, but unable to stop. Their anger was making them forget the reasons for his being there. You ask too much, Ulf said again. Go back now. We will talk about it. Will I see you again? How can I reach you? We will find you if we wish to talk to you, was all Ulv said. If they decided he was lying, he would never see them again. There was nothing he could do about it. I have made up my mind, Grebk said, rising to his feet and drawing his cloth up until it covered his shoulders. You are lying, and this is all a lie of the Sky People. If I see you again, I will kill you. He stepped to the tunnel and was gone. There was nothing more to be said. Brian went out next, checking carefully to be sure that Gebk really had left, and Ulv guided him to the spot where the lights of Hovestadt were visible. He did not speak during their return journey, and vanished without a word. Brian shivered in the night chill of the air, and wrapped his coat more tightly about him. Depressed, he walked back toward the warmer streets of the city. It was dawn when he reached the Foundation building. A new guard was at the front entrance. No amount of hammering or threats could convince the man to open until Fossil came down, yawning and blinking with sleep. He was starting some complaint when Brian cut him off curtly and ordered him to finish dressing and report for work at once. Still feeling elated, Brian hurried into his office and cursed the overly efficient character who had turned on his air conditioner to chill the room again. When he turned it off this time, he removed enough vital parts to keep it out of order for the duration. When Fossil came in, he was still yawning behind his fist, obviously a low-morning sugar type. "'Before you fall on your face, go out and get some coffee,' Brian said. Two cups. I'll have a cup, too.' That won't be necessary, Fossil said, drawing himself up stiffly. I'll call the canteen if you wish some. He said it in the iciest tone he could manage this early in the morning. In his enthusiasm, Brian had forgotten the hate campaign he had directed against himself. Suit yourself, he said shortly, getting back into the role. But the next time you yawn, there'll be a negative entry in your service record. If that's clear... You can brief me on this organization's visible relations with the Dissons. How do they take us? Fossil choked and swallowed a yawn. I believe they look on the CRF people as some species of simpleton, sir. They hate all off-worlders. Memory of their desertion has been passed on verbally for generations. So by their one-to-one -one logic, we should either hate back or go away. We stay instead, and we give them food, water, medicine, and artifacts. Because of this, they let us remain on sufferance. I imagine they consider us do-gooder idiots, and as long as we cause no trouble, they'll let us stay. He shrugged miserably to suppress a yawn, so Brian turned his back and gave him a chance to get it out. What about the Nigerders? How much do they know of our work? Brian looked out the window at dusty buildings, outlined in purple against the violent colors of the desert sunrise. Nijord is a cooperating planet, and has full knowledge at all executive levels. They are giving us all the aid they can. 
Well, now is the time to ask for more. Can I contact the commander of the blockading fleet? There is a scrambler connection right through to him. I'll set it up. Fossil bent over the desk and punched a number into the phone controls. The screen flowed with the black and white patterns of the scrambler. That's all, Fossil, Brian said. I want privacy for this talk. What's the commander's name? Professor Kraft. He's a physicist. They have no military men at all, so they called him in for the construction of the bombs and energy weapons. He's still in charge. Fossil yawned extravagantly as he went out the door. The professor commander was very old, with wispy gray hair and a network of wrinkles surrounding his eyes. His image shimmered, then cleared as the scrambler units aligned. "'You must be Brian Brand,' he said. "'I have to tell you how sorry we all are that your friend Igel and the two others had to die after coming so far to help us. I'm sure you are very happy to have had a friend like that.' "'Why, yes, of course,' Brian said, reaching for the scattered fragments of his thought processes. It took an effort to remember the first conflict, now that he was worrying about the death of a planet. "'It's very kind of you to mention it, but I would like to find out a few things from you, if I could.' "'Anything at all. We are at your disposal. Before we begin, though, I shall pass on the thanks of our Council for your aid in joining us.' Even if we are eventually forced to drop the bombs, we shall never forget that your organization did everything possible to avert the disaster. Once again, Brian was caught off balance. For an instant, he wondered if Kraft was being insincere, then recognized the baseness of this thought. The completeness of the man's humanity was obvious and compelling. The thought passed through Brian's mind that now he had an additional reason for wanting the war ended without destruction on either side. He very much wanted to visit Nijord to see these people on their home grounds. Professor Kraft waited patiently and silently while Brian pulled his thoughts together and answered. I still hope that this thing can be stopped in time. That's what I wanted to talk to you about. I want to see Lig Magti, and I thought it would be better if I had a legitimate reason. Are you in contact with him? Kraft shook his head. No, not really in contact. When this trouble started, I sent him a transceiver so we could talk directly, but he has delivered his ultimatum speaking for the Magter. The only terms he will hear are unconditional surrender. His receiver is on, but he has said that it is the only message he will answer. Not much chance of him ever being told that, Brian said. There was, at one time. I hope you realize, Brian, that the decision to bomb Dis was not easily arrived at. A great many people, myself included, voted for unconditional surrender. We lost the vote by a very small margin. Brian was getting used to these philosophical body blows, and he rolled with the punches now. Are there any of your people left on this planet, or do you have any troops I can call on for help? This is still a remote possibility, but if I do find out where the bombs or the launchers are, a surprise raid would knock them out. We have no people left in Hovestad now, 
All the ones who weren't evacuated were killed. But there are commando teams standing by here to make a landing if the weapons are detected. The Dissons must depend on secrecy to protect their armament, since we have both the manpower and the technology to reach any objective. We also have technicians and other volunteers looking for the weapon sites. They have not been successful as yet, and most of them were killed soon after landing. Kraft hesitated for a moment. There is another group you should know about. You will need all the factors. Some of our people are in the desert outside of Hovestad. We do not officially approve of them, though they have a good deal of popular support. They are mostly young men, operating as raiders, killing and destroying with very little compunction. They are attempting to uncover the weapons by sheer strength of arms. This was the best news yet. Brian controlled his voice and kept his expression calm when he spoke. I don't know how far I can stretch your cooperation, but could you possibly tell me how to get in touch with him? Kraft allowed himself a small smile. I'll give you the wavelength on which you can reach their radio. They call themselves the Nijord Army. When you talk to them, you can do me a favor. Pass on a message. Just to prove things aren't bad enough, they've become a little worse. One of our technical crews has detected jump space energy transmissions in the planetary crust. The Dissons are apparently testing their projector sooner than we had estimated. Our deadline has been revised by one day. I'm afraid there are only two days left before you must evacuate. His eyes were large with compassion. I'm sorry. I know this will make your job that much harder. Brian didn't want to think about the loss of a full day from his already close deadline. Have you told the Dissons this yet? No, Kraft told him. The decision was reached a few minutes before your call. It is going on the radio to Lig Magte now. Can you cancel the transmission and let me take the message in person? I can do that, Kraft thought for a moment. But it would surely mean your death at their hands. They have no hesitation in killing any of our people. I would prefer to send it by radio. If you do that, you will be interfering with my plans, and perhaps destroying them under the guise of saving my life. Isn't my life my own, to dispose of as I will? For the first time, Professor Kraft was upset. I'm sorry, terribly sorry. I'm letting my concern and worry wash over into my public affairs. Of course, you may do as you please. I could never think of stopping you. He turned and said something inaudible off-screen. The call is cancelled. The responsibility is yours. All our wishes for success go with you. End of transmission. End of transmission, Brian said, and the screen went dark. Fossil, he shouted into the intercom. Get me the best and fastest sand car we have. A driver who knows his way around and two men who can handle a gun and know how to take orders. We're going to get some positive action at last. End of chapter 9